We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. of the podcast. I'm Chase Parham and today I'm speaking with Kim Sessoms. He's a, a sculptor in Mississippi. He has many well-known pieces including a portrait bust of Eudora Welty, Billy Graham, the realist painter Andrew Wyeth. He's done things you've seen on the Ole Miss campus including the Johnny Vault statue that's on campus, the Coolidge Ball statue that is uh, on campus next to the pavilion, and uh, many more things around the state. It's got a Boo Ferris sculpture at Delta State University, the African-American Soldier Monument at Vicksburg National Military Park, and the Mississippi, Mon- Mississippi Monument at Shiloh National Military Park in Tennessee. But we're going to focus a lot of time today on uh, his most recent work. That's the uh, the Captain, the Tim Elko statue that's up at Swayze Field. It will have a permanent home starting in 2026 in the Champions Plaza that is being built at Oxford University Stadium. But for now, it's in the concourse, something that Ole Miss talked about from an administration level right after the College World Series victory in 2022. They um, commissioned Kim Sessoms to uh, to create that piece. And he talks to us a lot today about that process, what goes into uh, turning Tim Elko into a bronze statue that will sit at Swayze Field and Oxford University Stadium, and then also some of his history, things that he's encountered in his life that's allowed him to be creative and become such a uh, preeminent, uh, notable sculptor in uh, in his area of, of art there out of uh, out of Brookhaven. He's practicing OBGYN during the day as well, so he's very busy, got a lot going on, but he, uh, he makes time for uh, what is a hobby, what is a uh, very successful hobby. He's done a lot of great things, uh, including several... Uh, Presidential Medal of Freeman Freedom winners that he had or honorees that he has uh, sculpted as well during the course of his uh, his career. So we'll get into it here. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff. I found uh, found my time with Kim very fascinating. And again, he'll lead you through the process of what it's taken to get uh, this statue here of Tim at Swayze Field. So let's go ahead and get to it now. Here is my interview with Kim Sessoms. Kim Sessoms now joining me on the uh, Campbell Clinic Hotline. Kim, great to uh, to talk to you. I met you last week. We were both having uh, some lunch at uh, Italachi Gourmet on the square in Oxford. It's one of my go-tos now, Kim. Uh, the, the catfish and the Brussels sprouts are both pretty good on a Friday. What did you, uh, you have last week? 
did have catfish. I think I may have had a different side, but we were sitting with a friend, Jim Tracy Gully, and talking about things old Miss. And he said, uh, we talk about the baseballs. Matter of fact, we had just installed the Tim Elko. And he said, the guy that wrote the Resilient Rebels is back there at that back table. And I said, Chase Farley. He said, you know him? And I said, I have not met him, but I love the book. So, of course, Jim being Jim just goes and introduces himself. Uh-huh. <laughs> is that how that happened? It was, yeah. I, I had walked out kind of the back door. I wasn't trying to avoid anybody. We were just back there at that back table, and I was saying bye to some friends and kind of the same group that we go with most weeks. And, yeah, Jim walked over, and he goes, hey, uh, Chase, can I borrow you for a minute? I'm like, sure, whatever, whatever you need. And he pulled me back around to the front, and we uh, we went from there. And uh, I, I had a lot of interest, as you said. Uh, you uh, designed the uh, the Tim Elko statue uh, that now is up at Swayze Field. It is uh, going to be in the concourse until 2026 when they get the Champions Plaza uh, installed, renovated, created, whatever word you want to put on to uh, to get that done. And you've done a lot of things. Johnny Vault statue on campus, Coolidge Ball. Um, and I, I want to get through a good bit of that. I, I find what you do very fascinating as somebody who I think I probably failed every bit of art and coloring in kindergarten. So I respect any ability to work in your way as an artist. I'm uh, I'm, I'm envious of you in that in, in that standpoint. I, and I want to hear how you got into it. But let's let's start with Elko a little bit. As you told me some of the cliff notes. So you hear Keith Carter say, "Hey, we're going to build a statue," and you're lucky enough to be involved in this from from first phone call on. I'm probably going to interrupt you a little bit here and whatnot, but. Tell me how this gets started and what happens. How does this work, Kim? Well, we were obviously were uh, following the Rebels baseball season and going to a lot of the games and were there, you know, during <laughs> during that stretch where there was a struggle going on. So, um, actually, my when, when we got to the World Series, I couldn't make it out there. I had COVID, mm-hmm. and. So when the championship happened, I was on my deathbed almost. I mean, it was, I was really sick, but I jumped up out of the bed excited when it, when it was all over. And so I was connected from that standpoint, like most people from Mississippi were. And I had a relationship with the athletic department because I had done the Johnny Vault statue and I had done Coolidge Ball. So a few weeks after the championship, uh, I'd seen on TV, just like y'all, you were probably there the day that uh, Keith said there in the stadium, what else can Melco do for the university? And I remember Coach Bianco, or at least I had been told, Coach Bianco in an interview had sort of tongue-in-cheek said, what else can a guy do? He's done so much for this program and for the university. I guess the only other thing to do is to have a statue of him on the campus. I don't know if Coach Bianco meant that as a joke, but Keith kind of latched on to it. It's certainly uh, Tim's story is – I mean, you you wrote the book. You you know he's just a great kid and had a great belief that they could turn that thing around and has an unusual leadership style. I mean, he's a he's a humble guy, but he also literally carries a big bat. And uh, so when I got the phone call from the athletic department, the, I answered and they said, "Well, you you ready to do another one?" And I said, "What are we going to do?" And they said, well, we're going to do Tim Elko, but we're not sure exactly how this is going to all play out, but we want to do the sculpture. So, Chris, I think that they say it's here. Excuse me. I've got a guy coming to work on my TV system. So anyway, they, uh, 
they said, let's do it. So I asked a few questions and this is where it gets interesting because most people, I mean, obviously there's been a buzz about over the last two years, when's there, is there really going to be an Elko statue or is it not going to be, or what are we going to do for the national championship uh, celebration? So to do a piece of sculpture like this chase is involved from an artistic standpoint. The design phase is critical and the historical part of it is critical. I guess in some ways it's like writing a good book. There's more than just sitting down and doing it. There's the research, there's the, you know, the, uh, the drafting and construction of the sentences and the paragraphs and the chapters and how do you bring all that together. Well, the piece of sculpture is a visible form of art, certainly, uh, but it involves finding out more about the subject. It involves uh, doing the research on a composition and design that's going to it's going to meet what the expectations are. And in the case of Tim, almost everybody had the same idea of what this would be. I mean, if I had asked you. Uh, with your knowledge of what had happened at the season, hey, we're going to do a statue of Tim. Well, is it going to be Tim swinging the bat on a home run? Is it going to be Tim high-fiving the teammate? Is it going to be Tim rounding the bases with that classic pose that he had where he's pointing to the to the heavens um, out of gratitude for the ability to play the game in memory of his grandfathers on both sides, all of them sting. So the athletic department, like most of us, had envisioned that particular composition. So that helped me not have to come up with the idea. Now the question was, how are you going to implement it? How are you going to put this thing together? And that's how it began. At that point, uh, of course, I needed to contact him. And I needed to uh, get in touch with him physically. I need to be in the same space with him so we can meet, talk about this, explain to him how the process works. Because to do it well, he would have to be involved at some level, especially in terms of measuring anatomy and uh, recreating some of the pose because I had to have more than just, you know, some media photographs. And that's, uh, I was given Tim's number. I called him, found out that he had been, of course, had been drafted by the White Sox and was, was at the time that I talked to him on the way to Kidnopolis, North Carolina to play for the uh, A club there. Mm-hmm. So that's how it began. And then I got on an airplane and went up to Canopolis. They were having a, a weekend series and was able to meet his parents. Uh, John and Cheryl Elko are great folks. It's, you know, it's no secret that Tim had uh, an upbringing that helped create you know who he is as a person. And uh, they're fun people. And it's really helpful talking to John, not only as his dad, because they have, you know, family has a perception of you sometimes that's more intimate than the general public. But John had tons of photos in his cell phone. He was so sweet because I said, hey, you don't happen to have some pretty good shots of Tim, you know, during the season. <laughs> well, as most dads would, if you had a kid who was accomplishing as much as Tim had, he had an old file where you yeah, yeah. graciously sent those to me. And then I was able to work with the university to get all the photos they had from a media standpoint. But probably most importantly, when I met with Tim, explained to him the process, I was able to take the actual uniform that he had on in championship, shoes, hat, uh, batting helmet, jersey, pants, the whole, even the ankle brace, the whole thing, 
uh, had him put those on after we did some anatomy studies of him without the uniform so I could get the muscle structure right. I know you got must have questions at this point about how the process is going. Yeah, there's several there. I, I will start this way, though, because I, I got a couple about that. But what was Tim's reaction? I mean, it's a guy who, you know, it's it's a team honor. It's a team award. He was obviously the captain. He was sort of the face of this thing. But as you mentioned, I mean, from humble and different things, I mean, what was sort of Tim's reaction to being singled out to the extent that this was as you talked to him? Well, I think he would tell you this if you were talking to him, and I think he's probably expressed it already, and his parents have as well. Uh, and I don't feel like I'm divulging something I should. When I called him, and you know, he was expecting my call. He did not know me personally. He was a little bit aware of some of my other work. But when I met with him face to face, he said, "You know, if, it, if I had my choice, when they called me and told me this was going to happen, I told no, let's not do this." Uh, you got to do something that, you know, communicates more about the whole team. And so what was communicated to him, and I think legitimately so, is he was sort of the emotional captain. He was the physical captain of the team. He certainly had a great run as a player during that run to the championship. And so what I think the athletic department would tell you and what they told him and me is that Tim was to represent the individual player was to represent the larger team, the whole organization, the coaching staff, the support staff, the training staff, you know, all the, the grounds crew, the whole thing would be sort of be encapsulated to have a baseball player, you know, you know, the University of Mississippi baseball player. We are all we're going to know it's Tim Elko because of the pose and it's a good likeness of him, I think. But it's to represent that player represents the entire team. To do a dog pile or something of that nature chase would have been, number one, way out of budget because to do it life-size, it gets really expensive because the whole bronze casting process, which we'll probably get into, is very involved. It's expensive. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of materials cost involved in it. So I think they, from a practical standpoint, were thinking, how do we give a visible expression of the team and do it at a budget that we can afford to do and then We'll, we'll have the national championship plaza part really tie the rest of the team, the coaching staff, all of that together so that it's, yes, it's the Elko figure, but it's more than that. He represents as the captain uh, the entire organization. So he was very humble. So when you say anatomy shots, getting poses, all these things, we're talking about Tim strips down his underwear, you figure out the anatomy side, and then – you have him in some fashion recreate this this thing. Yeah, so in art terms, uh, and I don't want to get too goofy about this, but in art terms, to do really good sculpture, especially when you're doing human sculpture, and especially when you're doing a portrait, if you can do it with a living character and do it in a contemporary way, meaning you're doing it close to the age that the person is now when you're doing sure. sculpture, as opposed to a posthumous piece where you have to not only go by photographs, but by the time that person likely has passed away, they're at older age, the later memories of the person maybe don't have the same look of the era that you do the figure in. For example, with Coolidge, and Coolidge was, gosh, how great that I got a chance to spend time with him. Who knew that he was going to pass away, you know, the next year? But uh, to spend time with Coolidge, talk about the history of what he, the decisions he had to make and 
the things that he went through as a player when he came in as the first black player, uh, at a scholarship player at the University of Mississippi. But, but when he gave me photographs and I went through and watched, amazingly, there was not tons of video, even for a player of that level. Uh, I was able to get some video from other schools to watch him playing at the SEC and then stopgap those videos to see him in certain poses and certain actions. But Coolidge was 50 years older by the time we did the piece. So his anatomy had changed. So he's still the center of both structures. He still had the same linked skeleton, but his muscle structure is different. His looks a little different. He lost a lot of hair like we all do. Um, so that as applied to the Elko piece, here we've got a chance to do a player who literally within a couple of months had just won the championship. His body's still in shape. He still's got the look. Uh, as I told you, we felt like he needed the look, the championship run there in uh, Omaha. So he had the mustache working. When I went out to see him in Kannapolis, he had the full beard. And I said, Tim, I hate to ask you to do this, but can you shave the beard and let me get a better you know, look with the mustache without the beard? Of course, he was very willing to do that. So, yes, I was able to build the anatomy. What we do is we develop what's called an shave figure. It's anatomy where the muscle structure and the skeleton underneath are sculpted in clay, first as a just a generic standing man of the right scale and size. And in this case, I built a one-third life-size model. Tim's about 6'4", so... Think about a third of 6'4 and what kind of scale. It's roughly a two-foot-tall, proportionally scaled model. And I built the anatomy specific. I did a male anatomy, athlete anatomy, and then I tweaked it to Tim's anatomy, which means, you know, Tim Elko's got thunder thighs. He's a big, strong dude. He's got, uh, uh, you know, his, his pelvic structure, his hip structure, his arm structure, his hands, all of those things are very specific to him, just as, as if I did Chase's sculpture would be specific to you. So when I did all the measurements and all the scale measurements, he began to find it pretty interesting because people don't know how these things are done. And to do them well, you want to get a really good maquette, it's called, which is the small scale model. It's both, it's important because the anatomy needs to be right on a third scale, the likeness needs to be close on the third scale, and the pose or the composition needs to be what you want. Because when we enlarge that and take it to the monument size, if you don't have it right on the third life size piece, it's just going to be more exaggerated on the big piece that something's all. So it's really important that he spent the time and effort and was willing to go through that. So are you talking about, I mean, is it almost like a tailor? Are you just writing down measurements of everything when he's like that? I mean, how are we documenting the lengths and sizes of this? this, this well, I do a lot of photographs. And from the photographs, I do sketches, hand sketches. And from the hand sketches, I draw uh, and record the actual measurements of the length from the tip of the middle finger to the nape of the wrist. From the wrist up to the elbow, from the elbow to certain landmarks in the shoulder, the, you know, the circumference of the head, the length, everything you can imagine for a measurement from your sternal notch down to your iliac crest on each hip. Everything is measured because it has to be to be able to create the anatomy. You can create a really beautiful muscular structure of a male anatomy in a baseball pose but if it's not Tim Elko's anatomy, then we don't have the actual player 
who represents the captain of the team. We have a generic Ole Miss baseball player. Everybody's going to go, well, who is that? He didn't even play on the team. So it was important not so much to honor Tim specifically, but it draws everybody's mind that will for years to come, oh, you know, even people who weren't at the World Series are going to say, I saw him at, you know, at Omaha. And it was, you know, it's like people seeing a classic sports event and they've talked about it for so long, they feel like they were actually there. So it needed to be Tim, it needed to be correct. And anatomically, that's the way I built it. All those measurements, there's, there were probably, you know, 200 photographs posted around my studio and all my measurement stuff around the studio as I'm working on this piece. And even when you blow it up from third life to, to full life size, plus about 3% for shrinkage with the bronze, uh, you still have to, it's, it's not like you just blow it up and go, oh, here, I've got the copy of it now and I'm just going to send it to the foundry. It's still a sculpting process to do fine tail the details, fine tail the look of the face, all the details of the buttons and the number at the insignia on the jersey and you know, stripes on the pants and little shoelaces even in the shoes. All that detail has to be done in clay before you start the process of bronze casting. You had pictures, you had everything else, but I think you told me when I met you last week that you even had to have him go recreate the home run trot in the poses outside the the hotel. I did, and Jason, uh, again, it was a, I met him on a Sunday night and a Monday all day. It was his day off. He was probably tired, but he realized this was important. And I tried to explain to him. I said, look, the time you put in now is going to play into having a quality piece of sculpture because once you cast it in bronze, it's here long after we're all gone. People will be talking about this legendary story and your part in it forever. So let's get this thing right. So once I did the anatomical uh, measurements and study, I had him put on his, his own uniform and uh we literally went outside the hotel there in Kannapolis and there was a Cracker Barrel restaurant right there on, on that early that Monday morning and uh he was willing to go out and let me kind of lay out some fake bases and I said Tim what I need you to do is you're 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 going to be between first and second you're going to round second base and we put a little fake base down on the ground and you're going to hit second like you would, measuring your steps. And when you turn on that second or third step, I want you to point to the sky as though you just hit the whole run. And you did it enough. You ought to remember what that feels like. And he, you know, he was embarrassed and he was sort of like, well, this is so goofy. What are we doing? And I said, here's the deal. I need to see this from the front, the back, the sides both sides. I need to see detail of how your foot plants on the ground. I need to see detail of how your arms are going to this pose where the fingers are pointing to the sky. And so he, the first couple of times, he was a little self-conscious. And then like a good actor, he got what I was trying to do. So I, I'm there with a, a camera and I'm literally trying to click exactly at the same moment when he rounds the base and points in those four different quadrants so that I've got a whole file now of photographs of all these angles so that I can try to create a really good piece of sculpture. To get that, you do the one-third model, uh, you have the clay model, then what? What happens? How do we How do we do this thing? This is the part where we're probably going to lose some listeners because... <laughs> 
it gets a little technical and people probably, I was like this too. When you see a bronze piece of art, many of us think back to like bronze baby shoes or something, you know, or something sitting on a shelf in the house. So the bronze, to get a bronze casting, we, we use the same process that's been used for a hundred plus years. I mean, you go back to Rodin, you go to Augustus St. Gaudens, you, you, any sculptor who's casting in bronze today is going to have to use the lost wax technique. And the lost wax technique involves taking a clay figure, in this case, Tim Elko, and you get, you get it to the foundry intact. You know, it's the full figure. And then the foundry is going to take that piece and cut it into 12 or 13 different segments, arms, hands separately, the head separately. And each of those segments has to have a mother mold created by painting liquid rubber on the surface of the clay okay. to, to get a rubber mold that captures the details. But the rubber mold is flexible, so it's, it has to be strengthened by applying a plaster shell outside the rubber. Now, the rubber has a seam so that it can be separated and opened, and that seam is key so that there's a sort of a male knob sticking into a female receptacle, if you will, at, at points along the way so that when you open up the mold, take your original clay figure out for that section, put the mold back together. It has to go back together in only one way because the key requires it to go back together that way. Once you do that and that plaster is holding a strength shell on the outside and you put the rubber mold back together, imagine the inner lining of that that shell that you've got contains the contours and details of everything in that clay figure that you've created. Now, how can we preserve that? We're going to melt some uh, brown victory wax, sculpture wax, in a vat, and we're going to pour liquid wax down into that shell, and the liquid wax is going to cling to the rubber lining. And we do about three or four pours like that until we get about a quarter inch of wax that's clinging to the rubber. When it cools down and hardens, think of a candle wax, when it hardens like a, like a wax shell, we take the mold off, and now I've got a wax figure, let's say Tim's head. The wax figure has exactly the look of the clay figure, but the wax is only about a quarter inch thick, so if you go up through the neck, it's hollow inside, and you could get to the inside of the wax, and you see the outside of the wax. From this point, we have to do what's called an investment shell. What that happens at the foundry is they take that wax figure and they dip it into a vat of what looks like sandy milk. It's an investment ceramic shell that's heat resistant up to about 2200 degrees. And so that ceramic shell will coat the inside of that wax head and the outside of the wax head. And then once you've coated that with a silicone, you put it in a uh, kill and fire it up to 1800 degrees or so. And the wax is melted and runs out. Well, where the wax runs out, that shape where the wax used to be now is a hollow space that's sandwiched by this ceramic shell with little pins holding it in place. Now we're cooking because if we take that shell, put it down in a sand pit, take some bronze ingots that look like big bricks, mostly coppers, got a little bit of iron in it, some other components. We melt that down in a crucible and we have a big vat of liquid molten bronze. And then when the temperature's right, the chemicals are right, it's poured into pour spouts, 
into that ceramic shell, and that bronze runs into that shape that was a quarter inch thick or, or wide. And then if you, as long as all the air sprues work correctly, you don't get any air bubbles, you have a solid metal head, in this case of Tim Elko. So each of those sections has to be cast in that way. Then you have to weld that back together, chase those weld lines to get rid of them, and then eventually put the patina on to get the final coloring of the metal. When you see Tim Melko there in the stadium now, it at one time was all clay. Then it was divided up into 13 sections. It was cast in bronze. It was welded back together. The, metal, the weld lines were chased. Then the metal was heated, and the patina, which is a chemical treatment, was applied. So it has that, that brown look. Pretty involved. How long does that take? Just from that standpoint, I mean, well, it, it just typically like how if I sent something to the founder or whatever, however this goes, how long before I get this thing back in its full glory? So from the time I got the phone call until I got the piece to the foundry was about six months. That was my creative part, making the clay sculpture, getting approval of the small piece, then enlarging it, doing the large piece, getting approval from the university. I mean, I brought that clay sculpture through went to the athletic department, set it up in the lobby. We had folks that were available at the time come down and see it. Tim's mom and dad were in town. Tim went to see it. It was really a moving moment because imagine, I mean, you and I probably, you might, I'll never have anybody sculpting a life-size, you know, figure of me at bronze. Tim was humbled by it. He was sort of embarrassed by it all. But it also brought a great smile to his face because he looked at me and he said, we had a great run. What a great run. And that's what the piece is all about is remembering that, hey, it ain't over till it's over. And those guys really found a way to start playing at their, at the level that they knew they could play at. And they got, as Tim said, they got hot. And boy, it was fun to watch and experience and be a part of. And this is going to be a memory. This sculpture will serve as a memory for that. I mean, we'll be, people will be telling their grandkids about it. You know, one of the things that I, I've said this on the podcast before a lot, and I mean, it's I'm not saying it in any conceited way whatsoever, but, you know, one of the best moments for me from a creative is you hold the book in your hand for the first time. You know, you get it and you get the hat bound and, you know, you're like, hey, this is what I did. Yeah, so I'm saying, it, what is it like for you when you see the finished product to one finally? I mean, does that does it, does it does it do sort of the same thing for a sculptor and for an artist? Interestingly enough, it's interesting you ask that question as a creative person. Uh, I would say probably, and most sculptors would tell you this, I mean, I, I think about like if you go to Boston, Massachusetts, and you're kind of seeing the city, and you go by Boston Commons, and you're you know walking around the park there, and you see the outstanding, amazing, historical, big sculpture uh, panel that's in relief, 3D relief of the Shaw Memorial which is was the 54th Massachusetts in the Civil War. It's a well-known, famous piece of sculpture. And for those of us in the art world who do sculpture or paintings or keep up with what's going on, you know that Augustus St. Gaudens did the piece. But out of a million people that walk by there in a year, they don't know who did the sculpture. And usually they're not looking to see who did the sculpture. It's sure. just, that's really cool. I wonder how that was done. That's great. I wonder what the story was. So for me, it's a realization of just being aware that I know I did the piece of sculpture and the people that are around me and close to me and the university knows that I did the sculpture. But what I want to leave as a legacy 
is that it's a good piece of sculpture. It's executed well. It stands up well. The Probably the best compliment I've ever had was I did a piece of the Mississippi Monument at Shiloh for uh, the 6th Mississippi at the Civil War and that two-day battle at Shiloh. Very difficult piece to do, over life-size, three figures. And one of the park rangers came up to me at the dedication and said, it feels like it's been here since those other pieces were put up in the early 1900s. Some of those sculptures from the early 1900s were my heroes, you know, Proctor and some of those guys that did great equestrian sculpture. And for a park ranger to say, it feels like it's been here, that's just affirmation that you did a good job because sometimes you look at it and go, that really doesn't belong. So my goal is from a, it's not a pride standpoint as much as it is a satisfaction that can you accomplish a piece of sculpture that's going to hold up over time. When you write a book, I mean, people who read Resilient Rebels, I dare say of a million people who read it, they know you yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If only, Kim, if only. But you know what? It's you know, right. five years from now, all right, I'll even say this, three months from now, when somebody goes by and sees the uh, Elko statue, or let's say in 2026 when the dedication happens and they replace the Elko there at the front, if you were to ask any of uh, a thousand people that show up for the for the new entry, they're not going to know that J. Tim Sessoms did the sculpture of Tim Elko, and that's okay. I hope what they know, though, is it's a good piece of art to help remember what that run was about for Ole Miss in 2022. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I mean, you're practicing physician. How'd you get into this? How'd it start? Why, 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 why are we sculpting? What's going on? Yes. Now, that is an interesting question, and uh, I probably get asked that more than anything. I get, I, Chase, I get asked that question, and because I'm practicing medicine full-time and I'm making a good bit of art, the other question I always get is, is where do you find the time? And they're sort of related. Um, I grew up in rural Scott County over in Forest, outside of Forest, Mississippi, and I, I wound up there, strange set of circumstances, my my father was killed in a car wreck in the um, in 1963. Actually, actually, an interesting sports story. Denver Bracken, who was an All SEC All basketball player at at uh, Ole Miss in 1953 or four, when he came there from East Central uh, Community College, my dad was also signed from the same junior college team to go to Ole Miss. And Denver uh, is dead now, but he told me. 
years ago when I was in high school and college, the story, because I had not known the story, uh, he said, when we got up there, he said, I was a little more highly recruited. You know, Coach Rupp wanted me to come to Kentucky, but I went to Ole Miss and your dad came too. And he said, I had a few perks in my apartment and he didn't have any perks in his. And so Mississippi College at the time was sent good basketball. They really wanted to come down there. So apparently he got perched from Mississippi College and left and went and played for Stu Allen at MC. And during those days, they would all, a lot of times the big schools played the smaller schools. So by the end of 1955, Denver Bracken was a, an All-American at Ole Miss and Howard Sessoms was an All-American at Mississippi College. And who would have thought that these two kids who came out of rural high schools in Mississippi, played at East Central Community College, got to the finals of the junior college uh, national championship that year and got beat by uh, somebody out in Hutchinson, Kansas. Those two guys got drafted by the New York Knicks in 1955 in the fifth and sixth round, went to New York, stayed there for the preseason. Both women got pregnant. Both of the mothers got pregnant. And I said, we're going back to Mississippi. And Denver said, I looked at my wife and I looked at Howard and said, I'm going back too. And he said, well, if you're going, I'm going. And I said, well, Denver, what what was going to happen up there? I mean, it was 1955. This was Bob Pettit era. Uh, Cousy, of course, was playing. He said, well, he said, I was 6'4", and I had to play down low because that's, that's just where I played. But that was not going to be big enough in the NBA even at that time. But he said, your dad was 6'1", 6'2", and play, he could play points. So he was doing fine. He was probably going to make it. But remember, he said, in 1955, the average salary was about seven or $8,000 a year, and everybody had other jobs. And the, a couple of years later, uh, Bailey Howell, who I did a piece of sculpture on for the Howell Trophy down at Sports Hall of Fame, he told me during the creative process of that, he, I got him talking about his days at the NBA, and he said, you know, I got the largest signing bonus in the history of the NBA in 1958 or 9. It was $10,000. <laughs> yeah. Which I thought was so crazy from a sports history standpoint. Uh, Bailey said we would get a white uniform and a dark uniform, and that was it for the season. You yeah. better take care of it. He said we'd be sewing our uniforms up during the season. Two pair of shoes for the whole year. Uh-huh. I forgot what your question was. We were talking about uh, oh, being recognized. And, uh, I was asking how you got into it, why we're doing it to begin with. Yeah. So, um, so when my dad got killed in a car wreck, my mom died 15 months later and my older brother, my sister and I moved in with my grandparents in rural Scott County. And we were out in the country and we were creative sort of weird little kiddos and we were always making things and creating our own entertainment. And I started drawing and sort of forming figures, very elementary, you know, from, from the time I was a kid. And like most kids, I think this is just a human story. If you're good at something when you're a kid and other people recognize it, especially your peers and adults around you, I mean, if you can hit a baseball early, you like working on that skill, you know, because you get some affirmation from it. Or if you can sing, then you may like singing. Or if you mm -hmm. play piano, then you really work on the piano. Well, I can draw, and I got noticed for that at school, so I, I not only was playing sports, but I was drawing all the time, and I was I was starting to look at what other people had made in terms of of art, you know, in in history. And I had to look at it in books because I didn't I didn't have the resources to be able to get out and go see museums and things like that. So when I finished high school, wanting to do something with art, and uh, 
didn't think I was going to be able to really play basketball. I played for a little while, but um, I went to architecture school in Mississippi State early in the architecture program. I didn't stay very long. I was a kid. I was right out of high school, not very mature. And I bailed out for all the wrong reasons. I had a high school buddy that was playing football in Mississippi State. I wanted to go watch him play. And uh, so I dropped out of architecture, transferred to Bellhaven College to play basketball, and continued to make my art. But I got interested, because I was working at a hospital as a scrub tech, got interested in pre-med. The biology professor at Bellhaven said, I think you can do this. And I thought, I never even dreamed I'd even try this. So I went through the process of applying, uh, did well enough on the admission exam to get in, went to medical school. Once you start this process, Chase, it's a, like a marathon. So you almost don't look up for eight years. You finish four years of medical school, four years of OBGYN, still making art all the way through this, and then moved to Brookhaven and started my medical career when I was still making art. And in about 1995 or so, I started making sculpture along with my drawings and paintings, and everything just sort of exploded from there. I just I've had some really amazing opportunities to create some interesting pieces of sculpture. What was your first commission sculpture? The first commission was um, the American Evangelist Billy Graham. I had done a sculpture on my own, not commissioned, but on my own of the American artist Andrew Wyeth up in Pennsylvania, and he had been one of my uh, heroes and inspirations his art had really impacted me so i did the sculpture and just sent a photograph up there just blindly to andrew wyatt in chatsworth pennsylvania and the, his wife invited me to come up and really she said get it right so when i met with mr wyatt um it was like meeting with the history of american art i mean he was talking about his days with you know with some of the other great edward hopper and some of the other great artists in american history and there I was, some country kid from Mississippi up there doing the sculpture. So he that that opportunity opened some doors because other people began to hear about this guy in Mississippi doing this sculpture. So I went up to North Carolina and met with Dr. Graham and Miss Ruth Graham that did that piece. Then I did Eudora Welty, who's a famous writer from Mississippi while she was still alive. And then I did uh, um, Sonny Montgomery, the you know, representative that I had such a great history of support for our armed services from Mississippi. So those four people, uh, Wyeth, Billy Graham, Eudora Welty, and uh, uh, the, oh, I just said it. Sonny Montgomery. Sonny Montgomery. Strangely enough, all four of those people that I did portrait bust of were Presidential Medal of Freedom winners. So they were very oh. accomplished people and had been recognized. And so from those experiences, uh, I started getting phone calls about doing other pieces. Uh, I got involved with Sports Hall of Fame doing their trophies. My dear friend, Bruce Braddy, who who really got me started in sculpture, he loved my drawings. I loved his wildlife art. And so he kind of got me started, took me to the foundry, explained the whole process to me. It really taught me what it was about. Just a big influence on me as a as a creative person, as a guy who could balance several careers. He's out a wildlife writer, an attorney, and a sculptor. But anyway, Bruce had done the Charlie Connolly initially for Michael Rubenstein, and then after Bruce passed away, his his uh, widow Peggy they asked her about if she knew anybody that might could help them with some other trophies, and she gave them my name. 
Uh, and I got involved with Michael, and we did uh, Boo Ferris. We did Bailey Howell. We did uh, the Offensive Lineman of the Year as Kent Hull. Sure. Uh, and so I got involved with them doing that. Oh, and I did uh, uh, the Women's Basketball uh, Player of the Year as well. Um, Gillum. Yeah, Peggy Gillum. Yeah, and that was really fun working with Peggy. So uh, those were really fun commissions to do. And then I did a large piece of Coach um, Ferris for Delta State when they built the new baseball arena. And I, I had a relationship with Langston Rogers, a former SID at Ole Miss. And Langston, boy, what an interesting interview. You could get him on there if you could get him to talk. He's got great stories about, you know, his time at Delta State and that great run by their women's basketball team. And then all of his time at Ole Miss. But Langston and I had been friends for a long time. And he helped me with the Boo Ferris because he had access to a lot of old photos. And meeting with Coach Ferris was such great. Just a great thrill. What a genuine guy uh, he he was. And uh, well, I was able to do the big piece of him over at Delta State as well. What do you remember from the Eudora Walty one? What do I hear from it? No, what do you remember? Like, what, what, what sticks uh, out from that time? Well, I was a lover of her writing, especially her short stories. And I had a little bit of a connection with Miss Welty through my brother, who's a writer. And uh, she was good friends with a man named Frank Haynes. And, and my brother had been renting a room for Mr. Haynes. And so Eudora would be over there for dinner at night. And so he was a young kid in college at Millsaps in the theater department before he left and went to Juilliard. And he, he would sit and listen to these creative people from Mississippi just talk about other creative people from Mississippi and things that had transpired and writers, et cetera. So I knew a little bit about her through my brother, and then I began to read her short stories. And actually, ironically, and I told her this before she died, her photograph book, One Time, One Place, of great black and white photos from the WPA era in the 1930s, she was a, an amazing photographer. And uh, she claimed she was just an amateur and that most of the cropping of those images she just did through the viewfinder of the camera. But I used those as resources to really fine-tune and hone my drawing skills because of the great chiaroscuro in those black and white photographs. But when I did her her bust, um, I uh, talked with Patty Carblack, who was a dear friend of hers, and we had to kind of sneak on, up on Miss Eudora because she thought bronze, as her quote was, bronze of the dead people. <laughs> and she was not particularly interested in sitting for this, but... I had it in clay. I was really close. I thought, you know, I had her pretty close. And so I went over to her house in, in Bell Haven and sat with her and, and fine-tuned the work. Uh, and when I asked her what she thought about it, and I, I guess I wanted to know if she thought it was a good likeness, she said, I don't know much about broad sculpture. If you were to ask me about whether I like vanilla or chocolate ice cream i could tell you without reservation i like vanilla and that was her response to whether she liked the sculpture or not and unfortunately she passed away that next year but um that that bust uh is in the collection it was in the collection of the jackson public library i don't know what they did with it uh and it's also over at the little museum next door to her home that's now become a place to visit for uh, literature boss and other people who love creative endeavors from Mississippi. The John Balt statue, um, what year is it depicting? 
Is it a specific year or picture or what? They, they wanted to go with him. You know, he's on one knee. He's on the sort of a, it's a media photo of him on one knee with his fedora on. And, uh, he's got a football in his hand. Uh, it had to be from the late 50s. I guess it's probably 59 or so. Okay. Uh, that, of course, had to be done posthumously. I used to, uh, my father-in-law, Earl Walsh, was one of the first guys to get one of the uh one of those skyboxes at the stadium for football back when they at the time that he got it they just almost couldn't give them away nobody would would pay for it everybody wanted to sit outside so dr walsh had a box that was upstairs and we sat up there for 20 years the whole family would come to the games and oftentimes coach Walt would be in the box next to us so i would see him going in and out of the hallway into the restroom and at the time, I asked some of the old Miss folks, I was already doing sculpture, and I said, you know, we really would be great if we could convince Coach Ball to let's measure his structure so that at some point you're going to probably want to do a sculpture of him on the campus. And it just sort of got ignored and nobody wanted to do it. Well, after he passed away, I did get called about it. So I had to go from photographs and some historical data, read all I could. And so that was the pose that we chose to do for Coach Fall. I love the story about that piece. If you're ever on the campus and you look at it, notice his shoes. He had alligator loafers on. And when I was doing the sculpture, the small one again, the way you do the design first to make sure you get it approved, I had some of the guys from the team. It was, uh, I think Eddie Crawford was here, Catfish, uh, Smith was here. Some of the other guys can't remember who all they were. And uh, they came to my studio and looked at the maquette to make sure that they thought that we'd really captured Coach Fault. And they began to tell stories about their time at Ole Miss and their relationships with this legendary coach. Well, the thing that I found so humorous was when I got to the large, enlarged, over life-size piece, which is life plus a third. So if you're standing up, he'd be, you know, eight and a half feet tall. I had on lace-up shoes on and the maquette that's out there. There's a few of those around. He has on sort of a brogan lace-up shoe. And the guys that came to see it in the monumental size to the band said, no, man, you got you to gotta put alligator loafers on and I said, what's the deal with the alligator loafers? And they said, well, Coach Ball had these alligator loafers, and we were all college kids, and they were the coolest things we had ever seen, and he was kind of quietly proud of his shoes. So when Jackfish Smith told the story of after he went to the NFL and came back to the campus for a game, he was making a little bit of money in the NFL, and so he went out and got himself some alligator loafers. And when he went to see Coach Ball to visit, he sat back in the chair, uh, the former player did, and put his feet up on the desk so Coach Falk could see his shoes. And he's, he and he said, Coach Falk said to him, boy, you better get those shoes off my desk. I realized that you'd made a success of yourself. But essentially, he was in his place to say, you may have the shoes, but you got a long way to go, boy. Yeah. I love that story. And they were very, they felt very strongly about it that, you couldn't put lace-ups on them. You had to have the alligator shoes. So whenever I'm on campus and I see the ball, I always think about that story when I look at those shoes. 
you know, you, I have kept you long and I meant to, uh, really appreciate the time and, and, and all the stories and the, and the effort in this, but you, you mentioned something earlier and you mentioned your brother is a writer and obviously you're very artistic and creative and in, in, in your own right in so many different ways. Was there something with your grandparents, parents, like what, what cultivated that in you guys? I mean, where do you feel like maybe that was supported and, 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 and it came from a little bit? You know, I don't know. I sort of hang on to a quote that uh, Andrew Wyeth told me while I was in the studio with him working on on his piece. Uh, he turned around at one point and asked me about my childhood. And so I began to tell him some of the stories about some of the trauma we had been through. And I knew, because I knew a lot about Mr. Wyeth, that when he was a young man, I think he was 22, his father had been killed. His car had stalled on the railroad track in Chad's Ford. A train hit him and killed him and killed the grandson. And it had really changed Andrew Wyeth. It changed the way he painted. It changed his color palette. And his career really took off after that. So when I told him that story, he turned and looked at me and said, uh, I think childhood trauma leads to either psychosis or tremendous creativity. Sometimes it leads to both. Then he started laughing. I don't know, Chase, if maybe that trauma, because uh, we I was five, my sister was three, my brother was seven. I don't know if the trauma prompted us to find an outlet in creative ways to sort of live with that issue in our life. Because uh, it's a lifetime, as you know, I mean, you, uh, I mean, this is, Difficult discussion, but when things happen, it's not like it just goes away. Sure. It stays with you. Uh, so we began to find ways to express ourselves both in school, but mostly in our private time. Uh, my sister is very creative. She's a musician, lived in Nashville for a while. She She's a web designer. My brother has had a couple of books published, and he worked for a long time as an entertainment uh, journalist for Vanity Fair at different magazines in New York City. And then I'm just doing my thing. I mean, I I would be making art if I didn't get any commissions. It just is part of who I am and what I do. So I don't know if that answered the question, but that's no. the best thing. Yeah, uh, like you said, you're still balancing a medical career as well. A lot, a lot going on there. What? I think in a lot of ways, art is your hobby, and you mentioned that you would do it without it. But I, I last thing, anything else that you kind of do? I mean, are you a voracious reader, exercise? It's like, well, how do you get away from both those things there, Kim? Well, I used to play a lot of tennis and uh, put a lot of effort into it and, and it played well enough to have fun with it and had, a, you know, some guys that I played with. But I had some physical issues, back surgery and knee surgery and some heart issues. So I've tried to transition down. My wife started playing golf. Okay. And she's pretty good at it. And she said, if you want to spend time with me, you're going to have to get on the golf course. Well, I'm here to tell you, never having played that game, it is the most difficult athletic thing I've ever tried to do. Now, Tim and I talked about this. And Tim said, look, you hit the baseball with a round bat and a round ball. It can't get any harder than that. But I learned from Tim this year that he started trying to hit a golf ball when he was in Oxford in the offseason. And he called me and said, I'd rather hit a 100-mile-an-hour fastball than try to hit that driver straight down the fairway. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. A lot of a lot of truth to that, for uh, for sure. Well, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm glad people are seeing your work. Uh, like I said, it is out at Swayze Field now, a couple years away from the 
the final destination for it, but it's been uh, been well received at this point. Mike got it right. I mean, it's done. It's there. Enjoy it here a couple years after the championship instead of waiting for the the plaza and everything to be done at that point. But I, I can't thank you for enough time. Really appreciate it, and also getting to uh, to meet you. And as you continue to do things and things pop up, let's uh, let's talk again, Kim. Hey, thanks, Chase. I appreciate you having me on and appreciate what you do. And I love the book. Thank you. Thank you very much. Talk soon. All right. Talk to you later. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.